Hi, this is Professor Jim Paisley. Are you tired of the five-minute news clips presented every night by the talking heads on the national news? Would you like to know what is really going on? I have taught American and European history for the past 27 years. I find it fascinating how history truly does repeat itself. When we watch the evening news, no one seems to know anything about how current events are all tied to the past. Critical race theory, crime in our cities, federal versus state powers, the Arab-Israeli conflict? How about international relations with Russia, China, and Europe? On my shows, I give a historical perspective to what is currently happening in our world. Join me weekly to find the true history behind what is happening today. Speaking of women, let's talk a little bit about their contribution. Women across the United States gave up their lifestyles and made tremendous sacrifices to contribute to the war effort during World War II. That's something we have a tendency to forget about. The need for women in the workforce became necessary, if not desperate. Women had never worked outside the home in greater numbers or with greater impact prior to World War II. The majority of women in the workplace prior to the war were from lower working classes, and many were minorities. With men off to fight in the Atlantic and the Pacific, women were called upon to take their place on the production line and fill the vacancies in other professions. The opinions regarding women in the workforce varied. Some felt that women should not occupy jobs that otherwise unemployed men could hold. Others felt that working in a factory at an assembly line was beneath women of a certain economic status. Now, according to the pamphlet titled Woman Power, distributed by Labor Mobilization and Utilization, and I quote, Woman Power is a headache because it involves a complete dislocation of normal routine. Consequently, most women neither understand it nor like it, men even less. Therefore, it's essential to establish the fact that not only is it necessary for women to work, but it is an entirely normal procedure under a wartime economy, and to convince men, as well as women, that the more women at work, the sooner we'll win. Now, according to the December poll conducted by the American Institute of Public Opinion regarding women's opinions on woman power, 40% were willing to go to work. 40% were unwilling, 17% said yes, if, and 3% had no opinion. Now when the husbands were polled, they were asked the question, would you be willing to have your wife take a full-time job running a machine in a war plant? Their their percentages were quite a bit different. The response was, 30% of men said yes, 11% said yes, if, but 54% of the men said no. And 5% said, I don't know. So the summary of the opinion study was this. The information campaigns must convince 20% of the men that women are needed in war jobs. It must convince 54% of the husbands that their wives, if they have no young children, should take war jobs. It must convince 40% of the younger women, 
and 64% of the older women that it's their duty to take a war job. Now, regardless of public opinion, the reality of the times was that our country needed help in the workforce. We needed help winning the war, and the women stepped up to the plate and did so. The War Manpower Commission, a federal agency established to increase the production of war materials, recruited women into employment vital to the war effort. The women of the greatest generation indeed stepped up and met the challenge and then some. We owe them a huge debt of gratitude as well. Now one final key element to wartime production in Missouri. And we mentioned it a little earlier. Farming. You've heard the old adage, an army moves on its stomach. Well, farming played a major part in Missouri's contribution to the war effort. Where the plants in St. Louis and Kansas City provided the bullets that the troops needed, farmers fed the nation's workers and the troops overseas. Right out of the gate, Missouri farms started producing for the war effort. By the end of 1941, farm production numbers were 25% higher than the previous year, despite labor shortages. The wheat crop in the heartland hit an all-time high of 326 million bushels, and the number of head of cattle surpassed 19 million head. The USDA War Board recognized that it was paramount for the farmers to produce as much food as possible for the American and Allied troops and the citizens of the country. Despite the farmers' increased goals in production and shortage of labor and machinery, farm production met wartime needs almost religiously. Corn, oats, soybeans, milk cows, and chickens were produced well over their goals in 1943. Missouri farmers had their share of struggles in the mission to feed the masses. The two biggest problems they faced were shortages of labor and machinery. Many of the young men that worked on the farms as either farmhands or managers were not exempt from selective service in the early part of the war. This took many experienced and knowledgeable workers off of the farm and not producing the goods that the country needed. Congress recognized this error in 1943 and enacted deferment policies for men that were essential and needed on their farms. In the first year of the war, Missouri farms lost nearly one quarter of the labor force due to selective service or men wanting to fight the war. The farmers' only choices to attract labor were to offer higher salaries, implement better equipment that reduced necessary labor, and to use family members and neighbors. By the end of 1942, full-time helps wages had gone up 30% from Missouri's average of $35 a month to $45 a month, and the seasonal helps wages had seen a 38% increase or from 47 to $65 per month. Now, even though the pay for labor was rising significantly, Missouri farmers still had a decline in farmhands and seasonal laborers. Many of the rural Missourians moved to the cities to take high-paying war jobs, leaving fewer workers in the rural communities. This meant longer hours for most farmers, employing the use of women, children, and the elderly, and an increase in labor-saving equipment and farming practices. More often than not, farmers would carry the burden on their shoulders when it was possible. Many farmers reported that they would do 19 months of labor in a year to pick up the slack 
that was left by labor shortages. Women in the rural areas contributed around five months of labor on top of their other duties, and there were many young men that left school early in order to work on the farms. The equipment shortage that faced the farmers was another area that caused problems. New machinery was something that was for the most part unavailable to farmers during the war. The rationing of building materials made the purchase of new equipment unlikely, so the farmers had to make do with what they already had in the community. Many farmers had to revert back to old methods, such as using mules because the mules didn't break down. They were easy to find, and they didn't use any of the rationed gas. So, bottom line to all this, folks, Missouri played a very important part in the war. The war goods that it produced in the major cities and the food that was grown in her soil all helped to win the war. World War II was not only won on the battlefield, but it was also won in Missouri's factories, plants, and fields, all manned by Missouri's greatest generation. So as we sit here today thinking about how bad things are, let's stop for a minute and ask ourselves, are current times worse than those of the Great Depression or World War II? Better yet, ask yourself, can I, as a part of my generation, even come close to the achievements of my parents and grandparents? If so, how? The answer, my friends, is right there in front of you. Study your history. That's all I have for today. I'm Professor Jim Paisley. Hi, folks. How would you like seven steps to improve your critical thinking? Now, critical thinking, we've heard so much about that. That's what, you know, the, our educators are supposed to be providing to our students. But has anybody ever really explained what critical thinking is? It's interesting to listen to a quote that Ralph Waldo Emerson had. He says, what's the hardest task in the world? To think. Thinking is the hardest work there is, which is the probable reason why so few engage in it, is what Henry Ford said. Now, every day I'm amazed at the amount of information I consume. I listen to the news in the morning, check my social media accounts throughout the day, and watch some TV before I go to bed, all while getting constant updates via email and social media. It can be overwhelming. But things get really interesting when some of that information is biased, inaccurate, or just plain made up. It makes it hard to know what to believe. Even with all the competing sources and opinions out there, getting the truth, or at least close to it, matters. What you believe affects what you buy, what you do, who you vote for, and even how you feel. In other words, it virtually dictates how you live your life. So, how can you figure out what is true and what is not? Well, one way is by learning to think more critically. Now, critical thinking is as simple as it sounds. It's just a way of thinking that helps you get a little closer to the best answer. Critical thinking is just deliberately and systematically processing information so that you can make better decisions and generally understand things better. So the next time you have a problem to solve, a decision to make, or information to evaluate, here are methods you can use to help you find the truth. Number one, don't take anything at face value. The first step to thinking critically is to learn to evaluate what you hear, what you read, and what you decide to do. 
So rather than doing something because it's what you've always done or accepted what you've heard as the truth, spend some time just thinking. What's the problem? What are the possible solutions? What are the pros and cons of each? If you really evaluate things, you're likely to make a better, more reasoned choice. As the saying goes, when you assume, you make an ass out of you and me. It's quite easy to make an ass of yourself simply by failing to question your basic assumptions. Some of the greatest innovators in human history were those who simply looked up for a moment and wondered if one of everyone's general assumptions was wrong. From Newton to Einstein, questioning assumptions is where innovation begins. If everyone is thinking alike, then somebody isn't thinking, according to George S. Patton. Number two, consider motive. Where information is coming from is a key part of thinking critically about it. Everyone has a motive and a bias. Sometimes it's pretty obvious. Other times it's a lot harder to detect. Just know that where any information comes from should affect how you evaluate it and whether you decide to act on it. Number three, do your research. All the information that gets thrown at us on a daily basis can be overwhelming. But if you decide to take the matters into your own hands, it can also be a very powerful tool. If you have a problem to solve, a decision to make, or a perspective to evaluate, get on Google and start reading about it. The more information you have, the better prepared you'll be to think things through and come up with a reasonable answer to your query. I have a personal library of over 3,500 books, and I use them all the time for research. You have access to your local library and an unlimited amount of good information on the Internet. Don't rely solely on Google. The Library of Congress alone is a great source of information. Another great search engine that I use a lot is called RefSeek, R-E-F-S-E-E-K. It contains over a billion books, documents, journals, and newspapers. When you're trying to solve a problem, it's always helpful to look at other work that has been done in the same area. It's important, however, to evaluate this information critically, or else you can easily reach the wrong conclusion. Ask the following questions of any evidence you encounter. How is it gathered? By whom? And why? Our fourth step, ask questions. I sometimes find myself shying away from questions. They can make me feel a little stupid. But mostly, I can't help myself. I just need to know. And once you go down that rabbit hole, you not only learn more, but often discover whole new ways of thinking about things. I tell people all the time, there are no stupid questions. That is how you learn. Sometimes an explanation becomes so complex that the basic original questions get lost. To avoid this, continually go back to the basic questions you asked when you set out to solve the problem. What do you already know? How do you know that? What are you trying to prove, disprove, demonstrate, critique, and so on? The fifth step, don't always assume you're right. I know that's hard. I struggle with a hard-headed desire to be right as much as the next person, because being right feels great. However, assuming you're right will often put you on the wrong track when it comes to thinking critically. Because if you don't take in other perspectives and points of view and think them over and compare them to your own, you really aren't doing much thinking at all. 
and certainly not the critical kind. Human thought is amazing, but the speed and automation with which it happens can be a disadvantage when we're trying to think critically. Our brains naturally use mental shortcuts to explain what's happening around us. This was beneficial to humans when we were hunting large game and fighting off wild animals. But it can be disastrous when we try to decide who to vote for. A critical thinker is aware of their biases and personal prejudices and and the influence that they have on objective decisions and solutions. All of us have biases in our thinking. It's awareness of them that makes thought critical. Number six, break it down. Being able to see the picture is often touted as a great quality, but I'd wager that being able to see that picture for all its components is even better. After all, most problems are too big to solve all at once, but they can be broken down into smaller pieces. The smaller the parts, the easier it'll be to evaluate them individually and arrive at a solution. This is essentially what scientists do. Before they can figure out how a bigger system, such as our bodies or an ecosystem, works, they have to understand all the parts of that system, how they work, and how they relate to each other. I think this is the primary reason why so many people have been successful in solving major problems. They seem to have the capability to take complex issues and break them down into something we and our, our rest of our fellow man can understand. That is part of critical thinking. Seven, the final step, keep it simple. I'll say it again, keep it simple. In the scientific community, a line of reasoning called Occam's Razor, O-C-C-A-M-S, Occam's Razor is often used to decide which hypothesis is most likely to be true. This means finding the simplest explanation that fits all facts. This is what you would call the most obvious explanation, at least until it's proven wrong. Often, Occam's Razor is just plain common sense. When you do your research and finally lay out what you believe to be the facts, you'll probably be amazed by what you uncover. It might not be what you were expecting, but chances are it'll be closer to the truth. Some of the most amazing solutions to problems are astounding not because of their complexity, but because of their elegant simplicity. Look for the simple solution first. So in conclusion, critical thinking is not an easy topic to understand or explain, but the benefits of learning it and incorporating it into your life are huge. So remember these seven simple steps. One, don't take anything at face value. Two, consider the motive. Three, do your research. Four, ask questions. Five, don't always assume you're right. Six, break it down. And seven, keep it simple. I'll close with one quote. Anyone who stops learning is old, whether 20 or 80. Anyone who keeps learning stays young. Again, another great quote by none other than Henry Ford. What do you think, folks? Can you adopt critical thinking in your life? Better yet, can you pass it on to those who refuse to use it? Now, folks, here's something I want you to think about. We have a tendency to look at history as a snapshot in time. We all know the dates of 1776, 1492, 
But did you ever stop to think that the people who lived during those times had a history? Sure enough, they did. If I asked all of you, do you know something about the Civil War? How about World War One? World War Two? I'd be willing to bet none of you were there, yet you know something about it. Well, the same thing counted for all these people we're studying. They had a history, and they learned that history from their parents and grandparents. And those histories had an impact on the way they responded to things that happened in their lives. Think about that for a minute. All of the people you study in history had a history. Our forefathers, who came here from England, they had to deal with the tyrant prior to that. At least that's what their grandparents told them. Their grandparents, in dealing with Charles I, were living under a tyrant. And what did they do? They cut his head off. That's right. Revolution. So when our forefathers found themselves under a new tyrant, under George, during our revolution, they looked upon the past of their grandparents and their parents, who had lived through the same types of trials and tribulations. And that formed their opinion of what was the best course of action to take. So next time you're studying history, take the time to study the people during that period of time and look where they came from and what their backgrounds were and what their parents and grandparents lived through. I think you'll be surprised. In the 1830s, 1850s, and 1870s, we saw a huge influx of immigrants coming here from Europe. And they came here not so much for the opportunities here as for what they were fleeing. Revolutions broke out after the Napoleonic Wars in Europe in the 1830s, 1850s, and 1870s. I'd be willing to bet you if you go back and look at your family tree, most of your ancestors came during those decades, the 30s, 50s, and 70s. Whether they were fleeing religious persecution, a tyrant who was in charge of their country, economic situations, there was always a reason why they left and sought better opportunities. So think about the history, folks. Every time we have one of these sessions, think about the history. This is the reason I get so upset. When I see people tearing down statues, when I see revisionist history being taught in our classrooms, history is there for us to learn, good and bad. If we don't study our history, how can we possibly formulate an opinion as to how to best go forward? Bottom line is, we've done this from the beginning of time. People learn as they go. Again, good and bad. If you tried something and it didn't work and it blew up in your face, well, you learned something. If you tried something and it worked, again, you learned. To eliminate our history is to eliminate our culture. And I, for one, am not going to stand idly by and watch us lose that great resource. This is the reason I get so upset. So folks, continue to listen to the shows. I think, if nothing else, you'll be learning and adding to your own knowledge of where we came from. That's the most important thing. If you don't know your past, 
you're condemned to repeat it, just as George Santa Ana stated. Now I'm going to ask one final favor of all you out there. Take the time to share these podcasts with people just like you who are interested in our past. And by all means, please share this information with your children. After all, folks, it's up to you to educate your children. Not the schools, not the government. It's up to you. Just as I said earlier in one of my earlier podcasts, parents are the key to teaching their children how to live. That's right, how to live. You, my friends, are the true educators. And just like the grandparents and parents of our forefathers educated them, I'm counting on you to educate the next great generation of Americans. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for this segment. Thanks for listening to True History with Professor Jim Paisley. See you next time.